man. Okay, Bruce, over to you. Love you, Thank mate. You. Thank you, Peter. Wonderful to catch up with everybody again. Um, we're working through a series. Um, I'm not great at titles, but we did call it Life and Wartime, which is really talking about what does it really feel like to live between Genesis 3, which is the fall, and Revelation 22, which is when the Lord comes back and the fallen world and all that we have to battle with is gone. And uh, there's so many different things we can do through this, but I, I want to pick up the title I want to use today comes out of John 4, and it's Where Is Your Bucket? And it's not about a bucket list, by the way. It's got nothing to do with that. But um, I want to try and be real. I, I may sound a little negative when I first start off, but don't worry, I'll get into the positive. I'm trying to frame up what life is like for you and I and every day and how we've got to bring Jesus into this. And we've got to get in with him and get him in with us. So th this is what I'm trying trying to do so I'm trying to be real and honest um, without being too negative about just some of the things that we encounter with life so that's what we're doing tonight so um, one of the <laughs> I can't help but laugh because I do it all the time one of, one of the great human plight for those who love the Lord is we just can't help getting in his way <laughs> and it just happens all the time now He's got the grace for it, right, guys? He knew we were going to be like this. And, and he signed up for the deal when he knew. So it's no surprise to him. So don't feel too bad about it. But we read this wonderful story in John chapter 4, where Jesus meets a woman at the well, and he just begins to chat with her. And he asks her to give him a drink. And there's a lot of backstory, which I can't go into and don't need to, except to say that as sad as this is, most Jewish people, this woman's a Samaritan, most Jewish people absolutely despise Samaritans. Let's not go into the reasons why. Let's just put it out there that this sets the scene. She's a Samaritan. She knows obviously that Jesus is Jewish and she's shocked that he even bothers to speak to her because the Jewish people look down on them even worse than animals. Also, she's an adulterous woman, which he knows and establishes in his conversation, but also she's very poor because only the poor people were sent to the well to get water. So you would send your servants or the lowest people in the house or whatever. So she strikes out on all the high society rules. She doesn't tick one of those boxes, you know. So she's she's really at the bottom of the list. And um, she's, she's there getting water. Yet here's an amazing thing. And I could stop this message right now and say, let's all go home and we've hit. Jesus has something to give her. Don't you love that? Uh, she's, she's in human terms, not in God's terms, I know that. But in human terms, guys, she's at the dregs of society. And Jesus comes along and he's the king of kings and the Lord of lords and the son of God. And the first thing he thinks about is what can I give her? I'm going to give her something. That melts my heart. It really does. I mean, don't you love that? So uh, anyway, we will keep going. We won't stop there.
So he he begins by asking her to give a give him a drink, which is something that would never have happened in normal circumstances. And so after some more talk, Jesus then says, well, I'll give you a drink. And she looks at him and, you know, these wells are very, very deep and he doesn't have a bucket. And so she says to him, John 4.11, she says, sir, you have nothing to draw with and the well is deep. And I, I want to, I'm going to go in one direction that this is a beautiful passage, John 4, and there's so many different ways we could go here. And so I can only go down one way tonight in the time that we have. Um, so I want to take a fairly common direction here. And so I, I, have you ever... And if it's only me, tell me, but the trouble is I know some of you very, very well, so I would dispute that immediately. Have you ever thought about all the stuff that, in, that are in God's words and say, do you really expect many people to live this out? Do, do you really believe that people are going to embrace this and say, bring it on and, and, and do all of this? And, and you know what? At the end of the day, God's answer to that is, and the power of the Holy Spirit, everyone can. It's available. It's open. But no. No, you know, he says, you, you know, the, the, the road is narrow. And, and he says that with a grievous heart because it's open to all of us in Christ. It's open, it's open to the woman at the well, and we're going to see about that. And she's right down at the bottom of society. But often, you know, we know that Jesus is the Lord of Master, and we know that there's not enough words to describe him, and we've already talked about worship, and I hope you're checking. Are you lifting your heart to the Lord and worship on a regular basis? Because we need to be doing that. But at the end of the day, we believe that Jesus could get water out of the well without a bucket. The struggle we have is he won't do it for me. That's the struggle. Can Jesus get water out of the bucket? Well, yeah, he's God. He can do anything. We know that. Would Jesus get water out of the bucket for me? Oh, well, you know, that. and we start stacking the arguments that he probably won't. And we begin to process doubts or misgivings about what Jesus will do as we consider the perceived difficulties about our own situation. And, uh, you know, I, I get caught in this a lot. I need a miracle or I need something from God. And I begin to evaluate the only possible ways he could bring it to me and think, no, 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 he's stuck. It's just not going to work out. And we get caught in some of this. So when we come into Matthew 6, and everything that's in Matthew 6, and we're struggling away with this, and then we read verse 25, and, it, and Jesus says to us, hey, don't be worried about your life as to what you will eat or what you will drink, uh, or for your body as to what you're going to put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Now, our issues, guys, are sure, sure, we understand that. But right now, the car won't go. And we have to have money to fix it. And right now, the roof's leaking. And water's pouring in and ruining the carpet. And we have to have money to fix that. 
and we start seeing all of these difficulties and we begin to think our circumstances are just too hard for Jesus to work with. And, or maybe we're not good enough, or maybe we had some bad thoughts yesterday or spoke badly to somebody. And the statement, which I find in most cases is, is the least helpful statement in the world is, hey, Bruce, just trust God. I actually do trust God, but trust God for what? It doesn't help me. I love Jesus. And I try and walk with him every day and give my life to him. And when I'm struggling with something and people say to me, well, Bruce, just trust God. What does that mean? And, and how does that help me? Because I still have to live. I have to drive somewhere in my car and it won't go. I have to live in a house and the rain's pouring. And the rain. Now, these things aren't happening to me, by the way. So, so I'm not trying to get a sympathy boat here. But, but I have to live. I've got to get on with life. And... The thing is, it's not Jesus' ability that most of, my, um, uh, most of us are doubting here. Most of us believe Jesus can get water without a bucket, but we're not convinced he'll do it for us and we need it right now. And we get stuck here. And uh, the misgivings we have often come from, from the very fact that we evaluate the situation from ourselves and think it's so hard that God couldn't fix it. So here's the point, and I'm going to get into this in a way that I hope is helpful to you. Jesus doesn't need our advice. What he wants is our humility and our dependency on him. This is what he wants. He doesn't want us to try and work out how can he help us or what does he need to do and when does he need to do it. He's, he's very good at sorting that out himself. <clears throat> he doesn't need our help. But what he wants is our humility and our dependency on him. And so nothing or no situation we're in comes at any surprise to him. So I want to have a look at this today from a very realistic point of view that can help all of us. And it's meant to help me. Uh, sorry, it's helped me over the period of time. It's meant to help all of us. So how do we deal with this dilemma? And I want to start by saying this, and it's good to be behind a TV screen because you guys can't stone me. So that's, that. I mean, Peter can probably shut the whole screen down, but I don't think he'll do that. But... <clears throat> This is a hard statement, everybody, but listen, we are meant to celebrate our lack of control. I'm going to repeat that. In Christ, we are meant to celebrate our lack of control. Because when we get stuck in a situation, Jesus can come through in a way that far exceeds anything we could possibly do or hope for. And this is when the fact kicks in about what we're able to achieve when we are in Christ. And I'm going to talk about this and hopefully give you some examples that are helpful as we get into this message. So I want to work on some points. And I always say, Lynn, I'll send these to you. And I think sometimes I forget. So Lynn, give me a reminder in a couple of days if you don't get my list <coughs> and I'll get it to you. 
But so I want to go through some points we need to do to make this work. So the first one, number one, is just simply confess. If I hear myself saying these things, the Lord won't fix this, the Lord won't do this for me. Ah, I've been here before and he never fixed it last time. I need to say, stop, Bruce, stop. Um, and say, Lord, I, I apologize, I repent. I'm having misgivings about you. I have not believed, I've, I've believed in your abilities, but I don't believe you think I'm good enough for you to do this for me. And I need to repent and say, I'm sorry. And, you know, I love the statement where Jesus goes to heal this guy's son and says, can you believe? And the guy says, yeah, I believe, Lord, help my unbelief. I love that statement. Yes, Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief because there's the stuff still going on in my heart that's trying to talk to me in a different way. So a, a great place to start is just say, Lord, I'm sorry, I'm struggling here. I'm not having a lot of faith. I really need your help. So that's the first point. The second point is this, go to the scriptures. In fact, I'm saying to everybody, live in the scriptures, guys. Never let them get too far away from you. And, you know, there's so many places you can go here. The Psalms are full of it. And a study on the life of David is phenomenal around this. We'll look at. But Psalm 62, verse 1. My soul waits in silence for God only or God alone. David suddenly says, I'm not interested in anybody else. I'm just waiting on the Lord here. From him is my salvation. Verse 2. He is my rock and my salvation, my stronghold. I shall not be greatly shaken. David is telling these things to himself. And he's telling them to the whole world because we have the Bible and they're in there and they're in there for a reason. But he's telling these things to himself as he's going through life. And and a way back past life, I was a motor mechanic. Now, um, I still love to fix things. You can't help it. It's in my blood. But with motor mechanics, anything that's broken, the first thing you're going to do is want to fix it. Now, wives hate this. My Linda's not on this call. But I know wives hate this. Linda comes to talk to me about something. I'm not just listening to her. I'm going to fix it. And often she doesn't want me to fix it. Now, some of you wives are smiling. So you guys, you're, it's not just me. They just want to listen. Just let me share my heart. No, 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 Bruce. Don't give me a 10-point plan of how to fix this. Just listen. But I, I want to fix it. I want to fix everything. And um, often I can let that rule my emotions if they get away on us. So God doesn't want to be at the mercy of our ideas or the hopeless perspective we're often able to build about our own lives or our own situation. Otherwise, we just get tossed all over the show. And the Bible anchors us back to his truth. It anchors us back to his ways. It anchors us back that when we feel so neglected and alone, he says, I will never leave you nor forsake you. And what that tells us is my feelings are not reality 
it's the way I feel, but it's not reality. And this is where David is speaking to himself over and over again when these things are, are coming up. So rather than get swept up in the whirlwind of daily events, we need to become rooted in the solid foundation of God and his ways so we can trust him even when we're going through tough times. And this does mean leaning on God's character and seeking after his perspective. So it, this will be point three about leaning on God's character. And we covered this a couple of sessions ago when we talked about building an anthem of praise, and I've just mentioned it again now. If we are constantly worshiping God, we'll be far more responsive to his claims and far more open for them to be expressed in our favor. And I'm going to give you what is to me a very powerful example, though, although I know you all, you will all laugh, and that's okay. So my son is about five or six years old, and I'm outside, and I'm trying to start the lawnmower to mow the, mow the lawns, and the thing won't start. Now, even though I'm a mechanic, guys, I can't tell you how much I hate small motors and two-stroke lawnmowers. You hardly ever see them these days. They are shockers for not starting and not going and you don't have too much time and you've just got enough time to mow the lawn and the lawnmower won't go. If I was strong enough, I would have hit it over the fence into the neighbor's place many times. So my son comes wandering out and I'm pulling on this lawnmower pull start and it won't go and he says hey dad what you doing and you know in my head I think isn't it obvious what I'm doing where's his mother you know and so trying to start the lawnmower Carl and so I'm pulling on the cord and he says won't it start dad <laughs> now this is this is starting to really kick in does it look like and I didn't say this to him but does it look like it'll start Carl stop asking stupid questions now I didn't say that and I'm pulling on it so then he lays it on me and he says dad have you prayed for it and I'm standing there and I'm thinking you don't pray for lawnmowers Carl the lawnmower won't start Lawnmowers do this all the time. Lawnmowers hate you. Lawnmowers do this deliberately. They're wired up to annoy you. You don't pray for them. So I just ignore him and gives a couple more pulls and nothing happens. So Carl's watching me and he says, oh, all right, I'll pray for it. <laughs> so he prays, Lord Jesus, um, please help dad. Uh, he's getting very angry and the lawnmower won't start. So I give another pull on the lawnmower and it starts. And he stands back. This is my son of five or six years old and I taught him to pray. And he's staring at me as though, what is it with you? You could avoid it, all of this hardship by just praying and you didn't pray and you're pulling on the end of this thing and it won't go. All you needed to do was pray for it and everything is fine. And I 
going round and round the lawn because the lawnmower is now going fine, telling God, I really did not appreciate that. I would have rather it hadn't have started so then my son would know you don't pray for lawnmowers. But he didn't know, you see, he's only a six-year-old boy and he does pray for the lawnmower and it goes. Now, the point that I'm saying, get out of, at times, guys, you've got to get out of your own logic. You've got to get out of it. You can't stay in it. Um, you know, our, will we have some problems with things? Yes. Sometimes will cars break down and other things happen? Yes. And does just praying alone fix everything? No, we know it doesn't. But there should be a system in our whole being that when we encounter difficulties, we lift our heart to God. We should be doing this all the time, brothers and sisters. It should be part of our life. Now, what happens, what works out can be another whole story. But whenever we encounter difficulties, we should be lifting our heart to God. Because otherwise, why are we in Christ? Why is he our God? What is our point of favor? If we can't call on him for everything. And I think God wants us to pray for things bigger than just a car park. But I do believe we should pray for a car park. Why not? If anybody can find us a car park, God can. And so, so often we just think, no, you don't pray for car parks. Why? Why don't you? Why don't you pray for everything the scripture tells us to? So... My so that is the situation about the lawnmower, which just comes up. That lift it lifts your heart to the Lord every time you're running into difficulties and situations. Lift your heart to the Lord. So, the fourth point I want to raise is that we've got to constantly meditate on His goodness. I regret I've said this before, not keeping a journal, because the one thing a journal does is remind us of God's goodness in the past. The one thing God told Israel to remember their history for was to be reminded what he'd done in the past, not just as a historical reference, but because he's the same yesterday, today, and forever, that if we remind ourselves what he did in the past, it can give us the faith that he'll do it again today and tomorrow. So when Israel built tabernacles, in the old times, they weren't just historical reminders of when God left them out, led them out of Egypt and did those things. They were pointing to the future where God was saying, I did this before for you and I'll do it again. And it's so important that we meditate on the goodness of the Lord constantly. In our conversation, we talk about the great things God has done in our lives around our dinner table with our friends and I'll come about into relationships a little more of it later but we need to be talking about this um with any of you I know we don't have many conversations where Jesus isn't coming into the middle of it and we need to constantly remind ourselves of his power and his authority and his ability to do immeasurably more than we can ask or even imagine 
And that needs to be part of my life and yours. And when we get together, I've said this to you before, when I meet Mormons and J-dubs at the doorstep, I start telling them about what God's been doing in my life. Then I say to them, now, what about you? What's he been doing in your life? And they just stand there and stare because they have a belief. They don't have a living everyday relationship. So all of us should be very quick when we gather together to be sharing what is God doing in your life? What's been happening in your life? We should be doing this. Um, where Linda and I live right now, we've got about two and a half acres, or if you're up to date, about one and something hectares. And we have a very large garden that God gave us to steward. And Linda looks after all the flowers and I look after all the vegetable garden. And I love, I used to do a lot of it many, many years ago and we love it. But both Linda and I, when we came on this property, made this comment. We said, we refuse to live here as though there's no God. I am not going to work myself into the ground for this property. Now, I know that if I just sit on my backside and pray, weeds are going to grow everywhere. I know God expects me to go out and pull out the weeds. I know he expects me to plant new plants. I know he expects me to do those things. But I refuse to do this work without him. And it's meant to be a partnership. Our whole life and our journey is meant to be a partnership. Peter and Lynn are talking about getting a caravan and going around the country. Oh, there's plenty of non-Christians that do that. That's nothing new. And Australia is a stunning, beautiful country for anyone to do that. But their, their missions to go with Jesus and partnership with him and do something very different. Will they still enjoy the views and the wonders? Of course they will. Their father made them. But see, we've got to bring, and I can all go around the table, but it's what, Dennis, what you guys are doing right now. Dennis and Sue and what you're doing, and you know Peter made the comment, is Jesus, and I know he is, but Jesus has got to be working with you in this. Don't go all the way up to the top of Australia without him and try and do something in your own strength. Stay in Perth and enjoy it. It's a beautiful place. I've been to your home there. have many fond memories where Malcolm and I went to Perth and had great times here. So if you're going to go all the way out there, go in partnership with the Lord. So when we came onto this property, the, the neighbor came over and was having a chat with us. And it's good to learn from the neighbors. Linda and I are the newbies on the block. And there was quite a lot of stinging nettle in the garden. And the neighbor said to me, look at that mongrel stuff, Bruce. You can try and get that out by the roots as much as you can. And it's a shocking thing. It just keeps on coming back. I thought, well, okay, fine. So I just happen to be flicking through the internet on gardening. And do you know what I find accidentally so-called? That you can take stinging nettle and you can fill it in a bucket and it produces after a while, it turns to a liquid. And it's one of the most powerful fertilizers for vegetable plants on the planet. So I start doing this. So I'm wandering around, and this guy's telling me what a cursed stinging nettle is. I'm wandering around, you've got to wear gloves, it, it buzzes your hands. And I cut all this stinging nettle, 
and I put it in a bucket and I pack it all in this, this um, 20 liter bucket. I pack it all in this bucket and I leave it for three months and I open up and nearly collapse on the ground with the smell of it, but it's just liquid. So then you mix it up with water and I follow the instruction and I've been pouring it on the plants and the place is thriving. Now, here's my point. What everybody saw as a pest and a weed and a curse and something they're trying to get rid of in their garden, I've turned it into the power, the creative power of the Lord to produce plants. And I believe that's what he intended it to be used for. And it wasn't some new thing. It was written on the internet. So plenty of people in the world most have tried it, but it's free, guys. It's growing in my garden free and it's natural. It's not a chemical and it produces so much food. Here is my point. Linda and I pray every day and say, Lord, we're going out in the garden. Come out with us. Lead us and empower us by your Holy Spirit. This is hard work and it's good for us to work hard, but make it easier. My friend Dudley Hall used to talk about, we've got to work pretty full, which means you work without sweat. Now, I raise a lot of sweat in the garden, don't worry, but I know what Dudley means. Dudley's saying, get in the flow of the Holy Spirit and you achieve stuff in your garden or in the place where you are or in your caravan, wherever you're going or in your job or your marriage or your family. Get in the flow of the Holy Spirit and you achieve it without sweat because you'll just happen to be on the internet and you'll read an article and next thing, life's pouring out of your plants. And this is the point. Wisdom, some uh, Proverbs 2, and you can go through to Proverbs 4 and on we go. Wisdom's crying out in the streets, saying, come on, Malcolm. Come on, Maxine. Come on, Dot. Come on, Lynn. Come on, I've got some wisdom here for you that will empower your life. Come and get it. And here's my question to you. Are you getting it? What do you have to get it? Just, just open your heart up to the Lord and say, I'm willing, teach me, show me, instruct me. Give me the books, put the people around me. Give me the expertise. However you do it, Lord, it's so easy for you. And it's saying, and wisdom is saying in, in Proverbs 2, it's, she's saying she's crying out in the streets and everybody's walking past her in too much of a hurry saying, I'm too busy. And she's saying, you could do a day's work in an hour if you grab my wisdom. And this is something that we've got to get to if we're going to live this life between Genesis 3 and Revelation 22. We've got to embrace God's wisdom. We've got to walk in the power of his Holy Spirit. We've got to get out of this thing which is too hard, guys, and start changing not only our own lives, but changing the lives of the people and the city and even the nation around us. I watch the legislation that's coming through Australia. We've got stuff coming through New Zealand. However we're called to do it, guys, it's up to us to fix this. It really is. Don't expect the world to fix it. They're going to go with it. All right, I need to move on. Point number five, the greatness of God. We, we, need, we, we see that God is our friend who comforts us by his incomparable understanding. 
But we find comfort in him by knowing he is bigger than whatever is going on around us. Like any tree, our circumstance of, of heat and drought will come and go. All trees face heat and drought. But if the tree's planted beside the stream, when the heat and drought comes, it just draws the water through its roots that are planted in the stream. We will face droughts and heat and storms and all those sorts of things in our life. But the issue is, where are we planted? A guy I was reading the other day made the statement. I love it. I wrote it down to share with you guys. Peace doesn't come <clears throat> from finding a lake with no storms. It comes from having Jesus in the boat. Don't you love that? Peace doesn't come from finding a lake with no storms. It comes from having Jesus in the boat. See, we can choose to believe in God's character and trust he'll take care of us. He promises he will. <clears throat> and if we do, our problems can be seen as merely storms that may bounce us around a bit on the way to his destination, but we're going to get there because he is with us. I almost forgot what it was like now. I love it on a plane when it really hits a rough ride and bounces all over the sky because number one, I know that almost no plane crashes ever take place through planes getting hit, big planes, I mean, getting hit in storm and thunder and lightning. They're almost indestructible. The biggest problem is takeoff and landing. Sorry, I don't want to scare you. Secondly, I know the pilot's highly trained and I can sit back and this thing's rocking and banging and bumping and I'm confident that everything's fine. And this is the way we can be in the storms. Do we like it? No, we don't. We're getting rocked and bounced and bumped and we're uncomfortable. Um, but our faith is in God to know that he has our life in our hands. Um, a friend of mine, i got to watch my time. So anyone who's flown into Wellington, Wellington's what used to be classed as the third most worst airport in the world for pilots. By the way, it's never had a major accident, but the weather and the winds are horrendous. And so sometimes the landing experience coming into Wellington is just something else. And if you've done it a lot, it's quite fun, forgive me for this, to watch other people's expression. And this guy who was a pretty quiet sort of personality and not really an outspoken night was sitting beside me as we were flying into Wellington. And we hadn't spoken a word on the whole flight. I was reading all that next thing. He grabbed my arm and he said to me, we're going to die, aren't we? <laughs> now, forgive me for laughing, honestly. Forgive me for laughing. But I looked at this poor man and I said, no, no, look, it's all right. Have you ever been to Willing before? He said, never. And by the way, I'm never. if I survive this, I'm never coming back. And I said, no, it's okay, it's okay. Look, this happens all the time. Everything's going to be fine. But uh, he, I don't think he believed me until the plane was finally on the ground and then he was a happy man again. But the thing is, we've got to rest in the fact that, hey, the loving arms of God are enveloped around us. 
and that he is not going to let the storm get any further get any worse than what we can handle and 1 corinthians 10 13 says this it says no temptation has overtaken you but such as is common to man and god is faithful who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able but with the temptation will provide the way of escape also so that you will be able to endure it and and that was the fact god will get us to the other side god will get us to where he wants us to go and and when we do get to where we want us to go and if the enemy breaks out against us god will empower us to do his will but we've got to walk closely with him we've got to see that he's in the midst of this we've got to see that it's his storm or his city or his problem and we only have a small part to play in it maybe but we've got to be prepared to play that part and and pick these things up and then rest in him for the things that we can't do sometimes god will deliver us from a situation other times he'll just help us put on the muscle to go right through the eye of the storm and right through it but either way he's the one in control and while we might see some of these things as pointless or horrible or impossible to change, God sees it differently. He sees here's an opportunity to, for me to strengthen you in your faith. And here's an opportunity for me to do something that will bring about change and some of the things that are happening around you. And we need to cooperate with him. I, before I finish off, I want to come back to David again in this, um, because D David was a great guy at speaking to life to himself. By the way, we need to speak life to one another, and I'll get there in a minute. But David says this in Psalm 62, my soul finds rest in God alone. That's where David went when things became difficult and but here's what i love about david here's what he says in psalm 42 he says this why are you in despair oh my soul david's feeling in despair and he speaks to himself says hey what's your problem why are you in despair <clears throat> and why have you become disturbed within me he's rebuking his emotions He's rebuking his inner feeling of becoming, you know, that sick thing that some people get when they go to the dentist or something, you get that feeling in your tummy and all of that. David's got this going on and he says, why are you in despair of my soul? Why have you become disturbed within me? He goes on to say, hope in God, for I shall again praise him for the help of his presence. And David's saying, I've been through this before. And I've praised him and how he's got me through it. I'm going to do this again. This will happen again. So at times when we're becoming emotionally overwhelmed, it's good to place our hand on our heart or however you might do it and just say to ourselves, hey, my soul, find rest, be at peace. Find rest in God alone and get back into the ways of God. I'm coming to the end of this, but I want to wait, make one more point. Sorry for a long list. Guys, so it's point seven if you're keeping numbers. Keep good company. I have wonderful people around me, friends, family, 
brothers and sisters in Christ who constantly lift up the name of Jesus. I have people who love me for just who I am, but when we're getting together, they want to talk about Jesus. We care for one another. We look out for one another. We encourage one another when we get the opportunity. And it's just a joy to be in fellowship with these people. And this enables us to take the storms and the difficulties and even some of the abuse because we get with our brothers and sisters and the whole speech changes, the world changes. The name of the Lord is glorified instead of blasphemed. They start sharing their stories and their miracles and some of the amazing things that have just been happening in their life. And it reminds us of our stories and the way we go again. And it builds faith. Keep good company. Find good people and have them around you. Okay, I want to come all the way back as we finish to John 4 and back to the woman at the well. So the Samaritan woman tells Jesus that he doesn't have a bucket. So she thinks that's the end of the deal. And do you know what? It was better for her that he didn't have one. If he had have had a bucket, he would have dropped it down into a well and given her a drink. He may have even helped her fill her own bucket, which would be nice. But the drink she would have got from him would have made her thirsty again, eventually. So he goes and he says this to her. Verse 14, whoever drinks of the water that I will give him shall never thirst, but the water that I will give him will become in him a well of water springing up to eternal life. And here's the point. Jesus is more than a cool drink on a hot day. Now, I don't like the heat, and I spend quite a bit of time out working on it, and, and a cool drink is fantastic. But Jesus is an endless supply of living water. And you may have some struggles with your finances or your health or with other things in life. And by the way, when you do, we need to pray for one another, including Hunter. I'll be praying for Hunter. But we need to pray for one another. All these, these people and animals are precious to us. But if we get this water Jesus is talking about, we're going to be constantly refreshed and constantly blessed. Jesus, the Son of God, offers us living water to quench the thirst, not simply of our bodies, but of our spirits too, because his life in us is like the water in a river. It just keeps on flowing, and it keeps on flowing, and this is the life that he offers us, and this reservoir never runs dry. It never runs out. When it does run dry, it's just that we haven't gone back and refreshed ourselves in it. And it's always available to us. And so it's important that we understand that. So what does the woman do? She leaves her bucket behind. She leaves it at the well. She didn't need it anymore. She's got the real water. And so she goes back and according to the scriptures, she brings the whole city out to meet Jesus. Can you believe that? No more bucket, guys. What's a bucket of water? She's found the eternal spring of life. And wonderfully, she wants to share it with everybody else. 
So off she goes, and it says she brings the whole city back. Now imagine what took place at that point, and we can only imagine scripture doesn't teach us. But the best water Jesus gives is a water that satisfies the human thirst for fellowship with the one true God. And every one of us is created, it's in our DNA with a thirst for God and a hunger for God and a heart to seek for God. And Jesus will give us an endless supply of water to replenish that over and over again in us. And that's the water that really gives life. So over time, we may all get what we need by way of clothes and shelter and all of these other things. But if we don't get this true living water and keep drinking from it, no amount of provisions will ever leave us satisfied. And one of the keys to life is to go back to that well and keep drinking from it and make sure we're connecting with God on a daily basis and partnering with him in everything we're doing in every aspect of our life. So I think I will leave it there. God bless you, everybody, and hand it back to you.